Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 79, Timeline. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. This episode, asking one question, when does Justice League take place? This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Glad to be back so soon, but I had a second to record and I thought I'd just take on that hyperlink that I mentioned last episode. I have some other irons in the fire, but I want to look at this splinter in the mind. It's a simple question. When does Justice League take place? But what we're really asking is, when does it take place in relation to everything else we know, and does that answer make sense? I don't think it really matters, nor do we really care necessarily, if it all starts on a Sunday or a Monday. What we're wondering is, how long does it take place after BBS, and then, does that work? I must be honest, I was fully immersed the first few times I watched it where I didn't worry about it, and it didn't cross my mind. I think the theatrical cut is a little unmoored from any moment and can take place anywhere from months to a year later without issue. But Zack Snyder's Justice League is intuitively different, and Lois Lane is the key. <laughs> The revelation that Lois hasn't been back to work limits the window to make it all work. And yet, this is exactly what tickles my brain and gets me excited to explore and dig deep. We are going to establish a timeline. The theatrical cut erased all mention of time to avoid that confrontation with reality. But Zack Snyder's Justice League is so intricately interlaced that timelines only enhance the immersion, in my humble opinion. It was only after looking at those now infamous whiteboards did my concern about nailing down the timeline kick in to answer an ancillary question of paternity. Okay. And uh, what's the timeline for that? <laughs> we'll save my thoughts on Bruce Lane for another time, but obviously there are certain biological constraints to be considered, which would change your interpretation of the film. The timeline must have started by now. And once you start down that rabbit hole, you'll find dozens of different little details on time pushing and pulling on its place on the calendar, which you want to work out since it was so clear in the previous films. Man of Steel falls in the spring of 2013, and BVS is set in the fall of 2015. We'll get into those details more in a bit, but here was where I was going to say that this sensitivity to time is a side effect of being an attorney, because we bill our time, keep court dates, track deadlines, and because timelines are often how we prove our case or catch a contradiction on cross. But on reflection, I think I got it backwards, because I was a fan already doing this long before I turned this attention to detail into a successful career. I think I too quickly dismissed the dissection of a film as bad faith last episode. Sure, some use the pointing out of plot holes to denigrate, but it's also a way to engage with childlike wonder. In the following clip, esteemed children's author Roald Dahl discusses a child's approach to taking in a story. 
Another of the things one hears about writing for children is that children are very severe critics. Well, I think they take the books far more seriously than adults. If you read a novel, a goodish novel, you read it, you enjoy it, you put it down, and that's it. Then you go look for the next one. If a child picks up a book and likes it, that's not the end of it, you know. It's read at least four, five, and sometimes 15 times, and each time it's got to stand up to that. Sooner or later, some of them finish by knowing them by heart. <laughs> and I can absolutely attest to that being true for myself, and I'm sure it's true for some of you. And this is the difference between disposable entertainment discarded after one use and the work that forges a fan. Because when you're a fan, you come to know the story by heart, it seeps into your subconscious, and it comes to be contemplated all the time and in ways that seeks to engage and immerse. And with all that contemplation, you start to think about the consequences and implications of things that you wouldn't have, which is where we get that infamous dialogue from Kevin Smith's clerks on the Death Star contractors. The first Death Star was manned by the Imperial Army. The only people on board were stormtroopers, dignitaries, Imperials. Basically. So when they blew it up, no problem. Evil's punished. And the second time around? The second time around, it wasn't even done being built yet. It was still under construction. So? So a construction job of that magnitude would require a hell of a lot more manpower than the Imperial Army had to offer. I bet they brought independent contractors in on that thing. All right, so they bring in independent contractors. Why are you so upset at its destruction? All those innocent contractors brought in to do the job were killed. Casualties of a war they had nothing to do with. <laughs> These contemplations come from that intense adoration and obsession. I don't think the man who wept on the bridge of the Millennium Falcon came up with that out of a place of bad faith criticism or condemnation. And I got to walk on the Millennium Falcon, which like I cried after I did that. So I get real emotional and I start crying. Filmmakers own their vision, but culture is a dialogue with the audience. And as an aside, here's Lucas's response to Smith in episode two. I came up with the idea of adding a little schematic of the Death Star in here because the Geonosians build robots and build things. They're sort of the construction workers. They would be the ones that would probably be contracted to build the Death Star. And they were the ones that Jay and Silent Bob worried that they got killed on the Death Star. But they are, after all, just a bunch of large termites. <laughs> And things like the special edition and whether Han shot first or Spielberg's substitution with walkie-talkies is a part of that ongoing debate and conversation, which Zach seems more than happy to have with fans who love his stuff. In fact, he makes an explicit endorsement of the take-it-seriously approach that we've been discussing. I think it's just a testament in a lot of ways to the way we approach these characters and the way I feel about them. And I think the way I feel about them is similar to the way a lot of the fans feel about them in the sense that they take this seriously and they believe in this mythology and they they want to know they want to go on that journey so you know i'm happy to talk with the fans anytime they want about the universe absolutely that approach drew me in and of course policing plot holes can be pedantry but before the internet i like to think that they came from a pure place it's because you want to inhabit these worlds and take them seriously that you find yourself testing them wanting to engage in the work more you work through the concerns and implications we are testing all our own pre notions about it constantly we're questioning ourselves about like what we think we're always trying to, if we think we've created some piece of unbreakable canon, the first thing we have to try and do is break it. Testing the core of the characters is really what it's all about. If they say, oh, canon says a character can't do this thing. And that what we always do is say like, oh, well, we should try that immediately. The first thing they need to do right. is that thing. Because 
it goes to the heart of we want to deconstruct it because we want to understand it. And the only way to understand it is to flex it so hard that it might break. But that's how I felt like we went at it almost the whole time. Uncovering what the filmmakers put into the world in the first place. Production designer Patrick Tatopoulos mentions mapping out the world. You do end up, to tell you the truth, something you don't really see. You don't end up creating true maps of our world, you know, because it starts make you want to make sense. If they fly the, the flying fox to Russia, you start needing to understand this. So it's great to see how that world, you used to know that much of it. And now you know that, you know that. And you're basically creating a map of our world. And that's amazing. That's cool. My name is Annie Atkins and I'm a graphic designer for filmmaking, which means that I make all the graphic design pieces that the actors have to interact with and engage with on set. So the graphic props and the graphic set pieces. So we're always, even if the film seems to have quite a fantastical premise or a fantastical look to it, we're always borrowing from real life. So we can use graphic design and use of language to really drive a story forward and almost become a part of the action itself, you know, even if it is just a subliminal part of the action. An opportunity to live in their world. That's what I got from Man of Steel. That's what I eventually got from BVS. That's what I'm determined to get from Justice League. Given the scope of JL, it's actually an incredible feat that everything fits together so well. There are going to be some points to wrestle with here and there, but the central spine of the story is coherent. So, in a spirit of good faith, I'm going to stop treating Justice League with kid gloves and feel free to go over the details with a fine-tooth comb because that's what fans have always done ad infinitum, believing that we'll reveal more good than bad along the way. Maybe. For once, I'm operating strictly on faith, not on reason. So let's start with the dates and times we know. Man of Steel takes place in the middle of 2013, which is why 18 months later, BVS takes place at the end of 2015. BVS is actually anchored to a specific date and holiday, with the fundraiser invite showing November 1st, and the clear observation of the Day of the Dead in Mexico at the start of Superman's rescue montage. Clark gets word of the invite at work. Benefit for the Library of Metropolis. Someone on the committee requested that Clark Kent cover it. Probably some old charity crone who's got a thing for nerds. A weekday workday we could call Friday before his Sunday invite, which would make it October 30th, which works if Perry is the Ebenezer Scrooge of Halloween. Oh, I hate Halloween. This is why I hate Halloween. Ugh, Halloween is the worst. Well, I guess some folks just aren't Halloweeners. Get out, everybody! <laughs> To keep any sign of the holiday out of the office, which is possible, or you can push the invite back a day or so. The significance of this date is that it's the last morning where Lois and Clark could have shared the same bed at their apartment, because Lois sets off for Washington. Lane, don't you have a plane to catch? Yes, sir. And to our knowledge, they don't see one another again until the night of the bombing briefly on the balcony, and again on the night of his death. It's technically possible that Clark visited during her investigation in Washington, just before the bombing off-screen, just like he visited Martha on-screen. But it doesn't feel like they've been in touch all this time, which is why Lois is so desperate to use the paper to publish something to reach Superman, instead of just telling him herself. No, it needs to run now. Before the hearing, if Superman knows. 
knows it might change what he said. The Trinity fight Doomsday on November 12th, as seen on the bottom right of Diana's laptop screen as she reads Bruce's metahuman email. And they fight past midnight, so Superman dies on Friday the 13th in the darkness before dawn. We'll talk about the accuracy and canonicity of on-screen elements of props later, but let's take these dates as given for now. While there's no fixed time for a funeral, JFK's is cited as the inspiration for Superman's in BVS, and it occurred three days after his assassination, which is the typical two or three days for a public figure that places the literal end of BVS, the rising dirt on the coffin, at around November 15th or so. And with that as our starting point, let's start to tackle when does Justice League start? In a sense, we've already answered the question because the very first shot of the film is Superman's death cry, which would be Friday, November 13, 2015. And I'd like to tell you we can even narrow down the hour based on Justice League. If we use the fact that the cage casts no shadow on the box, sending a shaft of perfectly perpendicular light from the box to the ceiling, we can estimate it's around noon. And if Themyscira is about seven hours ahead of Metropolis, then the death cry would have occurred at 5 a.m. But this doesn't account for the travel time of Superman's shout, which is unknown. The scene seems to be conveying simultaneity, which is something that this series stumbles with. In Man of Steel, Zod's message is seemingly heard at the same time while it's night in Kansas and Nepal, and being 11 hours apart, that's a tricky feat. <laughs> And in BVS, there's the question of what Superman is doing while Batman is rescuing Martha. And maybe here, Superman's power allows him to reverse his auditory omniscience into acoustic omnipresence, and his shout is heard round the world at the same time. Or if his cry moves at the speed of sound, it would take several hours to reach the mascara, pushing back the time of death the same. But visually, the waves travel much slower than the actual speed of sound, which doesn't work if it's noon in Themyscira. But our entire basis for that was the shadowless box inside the cage. But if we watch it again carefully, right before we see the box, we fly over the island to the cage through that starburst skylight to see the box. Well, during the flyover, we have an exterior shot of the cage where it casts a shadow onto the island, maybe two or three times the height of the cage, like a sundial for the mid-afternoon. And if the death cry traveled at the speed of sound, then Superman died in Metropolis around 1 or 2 a.m. And if the death cry were simultaneous, it would have already been well past dawn. So what about the contradiction of the shadowless box? If the cage casts a shadow without, doesn't it stand to reason that it would cast one within? But the box is always aligned with the skylight, always perfectly lit by a perpendicular column of light, no matter the time of day or the shadows cast outside, as we'll see in a separate scene. So let me propose a reconciliation, that the starburst skylight is magic. This isn't wholly without precedent because, as we see from the purple ray scene, they have some sort of magic using frames, lenses, and light, so we won't try to tell time with the interior of the cage because it's unchanging. <laughs> You can try to figure out the mechanics of that magic yourself since I think we all know the real reason is the rule of awesome. The cage interior would look inferior with its light off center and not on the box. It's lit to look good, be dramatic, and be awesome, not tell time. <laughs> he knows how to play to camera. And it's funny because sometimes I think what happens with people who are like purists, they go, you wouldn't really do that. And you go, you don't really understand camera. <laughs> it's a movie though. And, and, and if you can understand that, you can have a lot of fun. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm always championing looking at real pieces and being authentic to reality. But actually, of course, what we do is we start with a real piece and then it's developed by the director and the production designer to suit the story at hand. Nonetheless, let's say that the time of death was November 13, 2015, 2 a.m. Does that answer our question? No, because when people ask when does Justice League take place, they're talking about the main action. Sure, we have flashbacks to 2015 and even before the daylight of history, but when do the dominoes start to fall? We don't need to get all philosophical about it because it's been asked and answered by Zach, who said on Scener about a month or so, and elsewhere supposedly answered six weeks. And that's a great guideline for intention and feel. But let's see if it actually works. Six weeks from the November 15 funeral would put us smack dab between Christmas and New Year's. And while I can buy Perry going Grinch on Halloween, to me it seems harder to erase these holidays from every setting, scene, and dialogue. There'd still be holiday decorations up in the streets, these holidays would be on their minds and more. I mean, Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman 84 just barely brush by Christmas and yet its presence is hard to miss. Not to mention featured front and center in Shazam. So it seems Philadelphia has gotten an early Christmas present in the form of its very own superhero. No, it's just that it's everywhere. Ribbons and wreaths and mistletoe and trees and Santas and elves and Frosty the Snowman, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, pounding you in the face over and over. You must love Christmas. You must love Christmas. You must love Christmas. You might want to fudge the ending of BVS, push it back a week so that JL clears the holidays, but then you break BVS by moving it too close to Thanksgiving. Congress is headed for recess, etc. No, BVS is perfect right where it is, and so is the triumvirate of year-end holidays. For Lois's silent story of mourning. Speaking of which, you've recently heard Zack say Son of Sun and Night of Night. Well, you might remember that Lois Lane's piece at the end of BVS was subtitled Night of Terror, Morning of Loss, with the same kind of wordplay which gets followed by Lex's too. Anyways, in a March 19, 2021 interview with Esquire, Zack was asked, is Lois Lane pregnant? And he replied, she's definitely pregnant. Supporting clues throughout the film from the pregnancy test to the bassinet and Bruce's congratulations. And this might give some context as to Zack's approximation of six weeks because trimesters are typically 12. As we argued earlier, the latest date of conception would be around October 30th. The first symptoms of pregnancy are felt as early as two to three weeks after conception, with a missed period as the most common catch. But the grief of losing Clark, amplified by the holidays, could mask the signs of pregnancy. Consider that this would have been Lois's third Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's with Clark, that he had planned to go through them with her engaged. You'll never love anybody the way that I love your son. And I just miss him. I miss him so much. And you can understand her pain more with these missed milestones and why she may have tested late. If we keep JL inside of 12 weeks, we also stay within the first trimester where you might not necessarily show and align with the common custom of not announcing until then, which is why no one else seems to know. So Lois Lane's pregnancy is the key to trying to keep it consistent, if we can. Let's come back to it later. 
First, we have to figure out where to begin our timeline. And for that, I propose Steppenwolf's invasion of Themyscira. It's the first scene that is tied in time to another tightly enough to begin to build a timeline. The invasion sets off the Arrow of Artemis, which is seen by Diana the next day, right? Those two are tied together by the Arrow, which we'll use as the anchor for our timeline. Most of the earlier scenes are mostly unmoored in time, allowing them to take place almost any when, between Superman's death and the Arrow. But let's talk through their elimination. Attempting to recruit Aquaman can be almost any time around a king tide, as long as Bruce can grow his beard, which is just on the edge of possibility in six weeks, but a little better later. Lois's morning routine, pardon the pun, could be any day. Indeed, it is every day. You don't miss a day, do you? and Wonder Woman at the Old Bailey is only limited by how long London would keep a banner up, and in fact must be on a weekday since the Central Criminal Court is closed on weekends. I know that this doesn't jive with the joke later, but it's only a joke through dramatic irony. What did you do this weekend, Diana? Nothing very interesting. Nothing about his question constrains reality or demands that this event occurs on a weekend. I think people sometimes forget that these lines are tied to the terrorists in time by the trailer and not the actual film. And one day we will parse Diana's response for their truthfulness, but that's another time. That said, his line does tend to land on a Monday. It's not impossible to ask later in the week, but weirder if you do, which means that the arrow flies on a Sunday, which is what we're going to look at now and plot out. So step in Wolf's invasion is our start and the opening of the scene gives us some time information. As Hippolyta and her entourage approach the entrance of the cage, they're casting these long shadows with the sun lowering in the west. So it's Sunday afternoon when we enter the cage and confront that shadowless box we've already discussed. After the invasion of the Amazons, Steppenwolf teleports to Pazarnov, Russia. Pazarnov, ghost city not far from Moscow where it's pre-dusk and in the same time zone as the Aegean Sea. Unless the mascara is much more east than we expect, or Zeus's magic changes the light on the isle. There's daylight coming out of Alfred's window during Bruce's shaving scene, which works as he's three plus hours behind. And we come to the kidnapping of Howard, who helpfully hands us Metropolis time. 11.30, early night for you, Silas. Yes, early night. So it was still light pre-dusk in Russia, where sundown is around 4.45 p.m. If the parademons leave at 4 p.m., that gives them 15 hours of flight time to Metropolis, which is doable at about 310 miles per hour. When we take the number of beats per second and multiply it by the distance per beat, we get a value for velocity of 9 meters per second. Translating this into miles per hour, we see that the airspeed velocity of a European swallow is 20.1 miles per hour. Or, of course, you can just use boom tubes to add all the hours you need. The point is, it's all pretty possible. So our last event of Sunday evening is the arrow, which flies to Crete in the same time zone. And critically, it flies before a full moon. And I'm sure you're already beginning to understand the implications of that, but let's link the scenes first. So we get an exterior shot of the Louvre with perfect shadows for that time of day. The sun is coming from the northeast as it would in the AM, and that's when we get our interior scene. A television reporter says... Yes, good morning. And the greetings between colleagues are the kind one gives on a Monday morning after the weekend. So maybe you can start to see my excitement at possibly pinning down our precise timeline. We're looking for a Sunday with a full moon, followed by an ordinary Monday inside the first trimester or so, but after Bruce grows a beard and we've cleared the holidays. With all of those criteria, we have to have some candidates for dates, right? And we do. But we'll come back to it. 
Staying with, what did you do this weekend, Diana? I think this downgrades the last week of December and the first week of January, because you're more likely to ask, how was your holiday, or react with greater pity if nothing happens. I acknowledge this isn't dispositive, but bear with my continuation of our Monday. The Star Lab Aftermath investigation gives us a daylight exterior shot of the Superman ship, and Silas meets Victor again in the daylight on the same day. Our Diana archaeology scene takes place on Crete at dusk, which is perfectly plausible. If Diana responds to the report by taking a three and a half hour flight with a one hour time zone difference, she still easily makes it before a 540 sunset on Crete. And that's if she flies commercial. If Diana flies private or with her own powers, the timing all still works. On the issue of whether Diana can fly, both Zack and Wonder Woman 84 have weighed in on the ability to travel great distances quickly with flight, but isn't able to use it in combat or move freely with it like Superman. Which is why she doesn't fly against Cheetah, Steppenwolf, or Doomsday. But also how she arrives on time to save Batman on two occasions and gets around. So one might say that she can fly but not levitate. And if you want a citation of where Zack says she can, that's from the Scener watch along. Okay, back to the film. The Aquaman rescue can literally occur anytime, and incidentally 90% of Norway knows English, so no issues there. The scene with Volko has no known location or time, but it's presumably near Atlantis and must have taken place chronologically after the toxic HQ scene. Given that parademons could make their way from there to Metropolis already to abduct Howard in the last 20 24 hours, snatching Atlanteans is plausible since it's between the two locations. Our final Monday scene is Steppenwolf reporting to Desaad. The shadows suggest we're flashing back to noon of the same day or advancing to noon of the next day. The scene is also our first seam where you can insert extra days to pad out your timeline if need be. Though remember, we've got a series of plot clocks urging expediency, like how long has Howard been abducted, among other constraints. Basically, what we're calling Tuesday is a bunch of scenes that are free-floating. This isn't a hole or a defect, but just the way concurrent occurrences have to be conveyed in a linear storytelling format, and frankly, very Justice League to do. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice... <laughs> We aren't anchored again to a series of sequential days until Cyborg scenes, so while it's not necessary to make the next day Tuesday, we're going to do it to determine the shortest possible span of time the story took. Spoilers, you can fit it all into one week, joining Superman in the sun by Saturday morning. So, at the start of our theoretical Tuesday, we get a Wayne Aerospace exterior shot at dawn, possibly dusk, and it's Tuesday assuming Diana took a red eye from Crete to Gotham, but again it works with other trans sports too. We have our history lesson, and then all of Tuesday is bookended by Bruce and Diana discussing the recruits. They're wearing the same clothing, her jacket is on the backrest of her chair, and the topic is the same. So it's not like they spent days twiddling their thumbs, they went from the history lesson right to recruiting. However, in between, we have Barry saving Iris, Steppenwolf interrogating Atlanteans, and Lois's cape scene. I think the latter is clearly unconstrained outside the daylight outside, and it does tend to imply she's home in the middle of the day instead of at work before Martha makes it clear. Similarly, the Atlantean interrogation can occur any when after the snatching but before the battle for the box. And finally, Barry's scene can occur on any day before Iron Heights, but it's also a rare scene with a readable clock that says 4.10pm, which fits with everything we're seeing. 
Incidentally, if I were a numerologist, I might say that it's a reference to Flash's first appearance in showcase number four, October 1956, but I'm not, so I won't. <laughs> also, Barry has a calculator watch that's unreadable. We also get this line. I start on Monday. Which works basically any day of the week, though on Sunday you'd probably say, I start tomorrow, and on Monday you might say, I start next week, but not necessarily. So absolutely nothing stops all of these from occurring on the same Tuesday, but other times work too. After this is our second seam in the timeline, where we can push back events some amount of days if we want. To maximize our days, cyborg scenes start this Tuesday too. But whenever they start, the following events have to occur in timely order. Vic crushes the recorder and has his adventures. Diana dialogues with Victor. Silas discovers the destroyed recorder and is kidnapped while Victor is out burying the box. And Victor returns to find that his dad has been kidnapped and goes to meet the team atop the G. CPD. You can't really start to insert days or delays into this, or the story begins to break down. For example, if you try to add days after the recorder is destroyed, that means that Silas is coming home every day from work seeing that pile of plastic without reacting until the night that he's kidnapped. It is a little odd that Silas left on a Tuesday night and doesn't return until Wednesday night, but that's easily reconciled by his characterization as a workaholic. But anyways, Cyborg's Tuesday begins with the daylight exterior football scene where he flashes back over his life and then Silas joins him in the night and leaves him the recorder. Victor partially listens, destroys it, and has his adventures while recalling his father's recording and after he returns a parademon appears before being scared off as we start our Wednesday. In broad strokes, Wednesday is the day that everybody is recruited for the tunnel fight at the end of the day. It begins with Barry at Iron Heights, which is a different day from saving Iris. As a general rule, clothing is a way of showing continuity of the day. If it changes, so has the day. With that rule, he's not wearing what he wore with Iris, so it's a new day. As a practical matter too, his job interview was after 4 p.m., meaning most correctional facilities would have been closed to visitors. Our clothing continuity shows it's the same day that he meets with Bruce, which we know is early afternoon due to an exterior daylight shot of the on-ramp to the airport, which works with a flight time from Gotham to Central City around two hours. Bruce flew late in the a.m. to arrive in the afternoon, and after another two hours or so to take Barry back to Gotham, plus the time difference, and it'll be evening. Meanwhile, it's late afternoon in Gotham for Diana and Alfred, literally tea time, and asked to meet Vic now. So Diana and Victor meet Wednesday evening, and as a night's touch, the street is still wet from the rain, and we know it rained as recently as last night. And again, raising continuity of costume, Diana isn't wearing the black leather jacket from when she broke in, but a brown suede jacket, which she's wearing to meet Barry at the airfield later, and where they see the signal that brings them to the rooftop scene with Gordon later. Again, this is all still Wednesday. I'm going to skip over the other scenes, but they're all clearly evening and fit. The main takeaway is that Silas gets kidnapped. Meanwhile, we flash back to Steppenwolf stealing the Atlantean box, and this fits any time after the Tuesday interrogation, but before the Wednesday dusk in Russia, because we get that scene as well, where Steppenwolf uses the second box to build the dome. After meeting Gordon, we get the tunnel fight, which ends Wednesday night. The only timing oddity is Arthur traveling from the Atlantis stronghold earlier that day 
to Gotham, while off-screen obtaining his armor and trident, and appearing exactly where and when he needed to be. It's convenient, but possible, and I wonder what your version of his off-screen scenes look like. I think the film gets us almost there, but is missing the last mile. Author leaves Mera, but remembers Bruce's words, The fight comes, we'll need you. You'll join us. So he swings by Volko to get his armor and trident, then books it for Gotham, and then, I guess, just happens to detect Steppenwolf once he's in range? It's that last part that's iffy. That that timeline is coincidental? Anyways, it's the start of a new day when we get our first Thursday scene. Steppenwolf was just summoned back to the stronghold where we get a hint of daylight under the cooling towers. As Moscow is eight hours ahead of the East Coast, it could easily be around dawn, which would start around 8 a.m. We jump back to the League's post-fight debrief where it's still pre-dawn Thursday and dark out. And then we return to Russia as Steppenwolf reports anti-life to Darkseid and we get an exterior shot of the sun in the sky showing us that it is indeed Thursday dawn and returning to the hangar the daylight streaming through shows that it's morning as the fledgling league has the first part of their powwow and all our clocks continue to be consistent as the Martha Manhunter scene is again in the AM. They're having hot drinks, possibly coffee, and Lois's watch face is visible while hugging Martha, revealing the time to be 9.15 a.m. It's a little hard not to be in awe of how everything is fitting together when you've got these international flights, instantaneous teleportation, half a dozen time zones, and twice as many characters all going to and fro doing this and that, all while being incredibly consistent in the time of day, the travel time, the sequence of events, and so on. Pretty big timeline. I mean, I'm just describing what they had to carefully build. And when you have the confidence to shoot your scene with a certain light, to set the hands of a clock to set the time, it's because you've carefully planned it all with intention, or because you don't care and it doesn't really matter. Given how tight the plot, the logistics, the sequencing, I have no hesitation in saying it's the former show of care and not the latter laziness. So let's wrap up Thursday. They have their powwow part two ratifying resurrection and the league exhume Clark. It's a doable two-hour flight and they're wearing the same clothes as during the powwow, indicating it's the same day. Incidentally, thank goodness Martha was away because imagine her distress if she had found Clark's grave disturbed. We get a flashback to Bruce who stayed behind in Gotham where it's dusk as he discusses his guilt with Alfred. We get a cemetery interstitial and by the time they're back in Gotham, it would be late Thursday evening. And as they've been going non-stop since Tuesday, the flight to and from Smallville and later Russia are opportunities to catch sleep, eat food, and whatever else they need to do. You might be surprised when you plot out the timeline for films how few make for these allowances. So to sum it all up, Thursday was reacting to their first fight with Steppenwolf and preparing to resurrect Superman. So Friday is for raising Superman and finishing the fight with Steppenwolf. Our first Friday scene is Silas being cleared pre-dawn, having been in quarantine since the tunnel fight on Thursday. The League begin their infiltration of the ship as we have a pre-dawn scene of Lois's pregnancy test, and the resurrection and battle of Heroes Park happens at dawn. And after Silas sacrifices himself to Steppenwolf, they regroup and debrief still Friday morning. We arrive at Kent Farm, also still early, which is accounted for by the one one hour time difference and Superman's speed. And while there's no indication of time, the League meet Alfred Friday morning, since it was just a short trip from Metropolis to Gotham while they wait for the satellites. And finally, we have the flight of the flying fox, which gives us an exterior shot of the setting sun, which is around 4 to 5 p.m. The gap between when Bruce says, not us united, and here is time unaccounted for. So it's just a blank gap in your timeline. 
Cyborg has his project of fixing the fox and Flash is feeding his face, but since they discovered Pozarnov in the previous scene, it seems like they should already be on the move. Cyborg can work remotely and the fox can catch up if he can get it flying. I think the unspoken assumption that accounts for this is that they were waiting for Superman to show up, which is why that's Wayne's parting claim to Alfred. He'll be here, Alfred, I know it. It's less clear how they knew how long they could afford to wait, and why they weren't taking any proactive steps to seek Superman. Like, call Lois's cell phone, maybe. <laughs> that said, Bruce blowing up Lois's phone with a bunch of desperate text messages isn't really mythological, so I can understand leaving out uninteresting logistics like that. Another main possibility is that Batman believes the Flying Fox is absolutely essential to the mission, though I'm a little skeptical. Bruce says... I need more range and I need more cargo. Yet Pozarnov is less than 5,000 miles away, and there are off-the-shelf solutions that can do most of what the Fox did. In a sense, it's reversing the ethos behind the kryptonite grenade launcher in BVS. Certainly, with unlimited funds, you can create a custom gun to spec with the best characteristics, but at the risk of unreliability as it's the first of its kind. And so for that fight, Bruce went with a trusted and proven platform to deliver his munitions to target, when only his life was on the line. Here, he's gambling it all on a prototype that wasn't even working 10 minutes ago. I mean, your guilt's overcome your reason. And this is all slightly exacerbated by being in Russia because some of the world's most powerful PMC air forces are there to be bought. Although I can't think of anything that can crash through a bunch of buildings and still fly shortly afterwards. But this isn't a Flying Fox episode. <laughs> Returning to our Friday night timeline, Steppenwolf starts the sink, which sets off the boom heard around the world. And it's night with the Amazons seven hours ahead of the East Coast, but it's also night for Alfred. And we're getting a ton of lunar data which we can tie back to our final timeline, maybe. Although if you remember what we saw the first time, you might spot the issue. In any case, we have the dome destruction plan while in flight, and then Superman's Flight 2.0, Master Kent meeting Alfred, and then the League battle Steppenwolf until he's dead, and they all get to enjoy a team pose at dawn, signaling the start of a new day, Saturday, which is the last day of our fixed timeline. Everything else afterwards is free to move around, though I do have two questions towards the end. First, what happened to the rest of the parademons? I guess they all got defeated off screen, which is what takes us to the dawn. And second, how do you think the commute home went? The logistics are a little socially complicated. Anyways, I'm profoundly impressed by how sound the timeline is overall as a whole. As a timeline we've been able to piece together. It's when you start to dive into the details that we get a push and pull of issues. So the first one that got me really excited was the full moon behind Artemis's arrow that we mentioned before. I got even more excited when I looked back at the theatrical version and noticed that it had changed. What immediately sprung to mind was this clip from our episode 52 on fantasy, where J.R.R. Tolkien's daughter reflects upon her father's perfectionism and dedication to world building. I do remember him saying things like um, that he had to rewrite a whole part of the Lord of the Rings because he, or at least a whole chapter, which was, might have been quite a lot, because he had described something as being by full moon and realized on looking back at the time scheme that he was a day in advance, that the moon couldn't have been full till the next day. And I mean, one person in a thousand of readers would probably have noticed that, but he wouldn't dream of leaving something like that in. 
so the theatrical version shows the last quarter moon. But if Zack Snyder's Justice League bothered to make it a full moon, isn't that evidence of intention? Doesn't that suggest a specific timing to adhere to? So I built the timeline we just toured to figure out what moon would fall on our Friday. And it would be the waning gibbous. Now more than half full, we say its shape is gibbous, which means swollen or convex. A few days after full moon, the lit side is shrinking. It's in the waning or shrinking gibbous phase. So imagine my excitement when scanning through the skies of our Friday night scenes and seemingly seeing exactly that. During Superman's Flight 2.0, for a split second, he flies in front of the moon, which appears to be a waning gibbous. Exactly as our timeline and science would predict. Additionally, without the skies being stained red, our final battle is bathed in beautiful moonlight. Yet with all the cloud cover, we don't get to see the moon. But for a split second, there's a break in the clouds when Aquaman leaps off the Batmobile. And there, I looked at that oblong shape and said, that's a waning gibbous, all right, right? Well, Aquaman's battle in the sky gives us a few more glimpses of the moon, and sometimes it looks full, and other times it could be the gibbous I wanted to see, but I was starting to doubt. It got worse reviewing the boom heard round the world. The moons that we see with the Amazons and Alfred are pretty full and round. They're just slightly covered by the clouds, which could have been my last excuse, but then Master Kent meets Alfred, and it's all over. <laughs> In the backdrop is an unambiguously brilliant full moon. Utterly beautiful, totally heartbreaking. We messed up the timeline! <laughs> well, what's the big deal? Can't you make the film fit with a full moon arrow Sunday and a full moon battle Friday? Sure, you can, but you'd have to spread out the action from falling a little over five days to nearly 28. In evaluating the options, I started to lose faith that this was intention and more likely accident. Knowing how the sausage was made allows me to give it all more grace, but it also shakes my faith. I'm not always certain if something was intention, oversight, accident, or compromise. Zack's seen the film in some form countless times, but he's only had a finite amount of time to see the final cut, which means even he's been surprised at what he's seen. How many times do you think at this point both of you have seen the four-hour version of Zack Snyder's Justice League? I've seen it, uh, I can't, I probably don't even know how many times I've seen it. But I will say that when it's all mixed and colored in its final form, I've only probably seen maybe four or five times that way. Like completely everything done, done. Every time I kind of see something else too, I got to say I'm still seeing stuff. When we watched it in IMAX for the last time, I literally was like, what the heck? What's that? What's that? So like, you know, when you see See it's so huge you see it you're like how did that get through we can talk about that later <laughs> Between working on Army, the time crunch, pandemic pressures, and more, it'd be unsurprising if some unintended things made it through. Assistant editor Carlos Castilian explains how something was mercifully caught by Debbie. There was an ADR line that our mixer accidentally cut in. He was having a hard time understanding what Amy Adams said when they land in the field, when she lands with Superman in the field, and he looked for ADR. He didn't ask anybody. He just pulled up some ADR that was there and she said, you smell good, which is a holdover from the theatrical. And so we're in the final mix and we're, we're watching this scene and all of a sudden it's like, we hear this, you know, you smell good. And we're like, wait a minute, what's that? Where's that? And the, I think Zach didn't even pick it up. Debbie, his wife is the one that noticed it. And we played it back two or three times. And a lot of people were like, what, what's the problem? And it's like, she shouldn't say that. It doesn't matter how he smells. <laughs> good catch. <Yeah. laughs> 
Intention is also a complicated question, because when was it intended? Martian Manhunter is an example of something not intended from the beginning of the films, but intended for the boarding of JL, arguably. Yet once the idea was vetoed and cut, the intention was changed yet again while the film was being plotted and shot. I sincerely doubt Diane Lane was given any direction to act in some way an alien imposter. So limiting intention inside her own head, there's no John Jones there. So it's hard to gauge something like these moons. Was there ever care or attention to the timing? I mean, someone at some time had to have changed the first moon. At what phase of the movie was the phase of the moon changed? And at what stage or motivation was that intention? Is it a restoration or just an oversight? I don't know that we can ever actually know. That's when he altered the timeline. All right, but putting aside the moons, let's look at other factors which push and pull on the film's timeline. Again, looking to inhabit, not break this world, our intentions are pure and loving. And so I'll roughly categorize the following topics by whether they bring JL closer to BVS or push it further out. As extrinsic evidence, we have Zack's statements and intentions that it occur about a month or so, say six weeks. And we have Zack's explicit confirmation of Lois's pregnancy, which we can also infer with intrinsic evidence as well. JL can only be out so far because Lois has not been back to work, and because Martha says the whole world is mourning when at some point they'd move on. A softer factor is the guarding of the mother boxes after awakening. At some point, it's been too long and it seems a little ridiculous not to do something or react. And by the same token too is Steppenwolf's arrival. If the boxes awoke in 2015 and Steppenwolf doesn't come to Earth in 2017, it may take some explanation. Finally, depending on how literally you take the editing, Harold is kidnapped even before the arrow is fired. So the longer you spread out the time, the longer he's Steppenwolf's captive, neither interrogated nor executed. In terms of topics that push JL out further, let's start with the single biggest piece of extrinsic evidence. Suicide Squad would need to occur between the death of Superman and before Bruce recruits the League. But moreover, if you take the production props of Suicide Squad as literal canon, then it has to occur sometime in the summer of 2016 or later because many of the props are dated as such. Switching back to intrinsic evidence, we mentioned before that Bruce needs time to grow out his beard, and we can add to that a whole to-do list that takes time. Trying to keep JL in January makes the corn crop on the Kent farm a little loony, and speaking of the farm, foreclosures take over 100 days, which might make Clark look a little like a bit of a bad son. Finally, Silas Stone's headstone reads 2017, with respect to his end of life. So let's break those down, and we'll talk about Lois's furlough. When I saw Mr. Perry, he told me that you haven't been to work since Clark died. I can't. The most intuitive interpretation is that Lois is still employed by the Daily Planet, but hasn't been back to the office. This would be sustainable for as much as two months or so. There is no federal bereavement leave law, but given that her boss also attended Clark's funeral, those days are okay. For reference, the armed services give three days and up to two weeks sick leave. In Man of Steel, it was mentioned that Lois is salaried. Two weeks leave, no pay, that's your penance. You try something like this again? You're done here. Fine. No, let's make it three weeks since you're so willing to agree with me. Harry! No, no, don't. 
though. So she's not working on a per piece basis and can even suffer up to three weeks unpaid leave while remaining employed. So as a veteran, senior star reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner, and the apple of Perry's eye. When we did Man of Steel, in talking to Zach about it, the relationship between Lois and Perry, if Perry White is sort of a father figure at the Daily Planet, Lois Lane is his favorite child, right? You know, sometimes he's willing to sort of look the other way. Maybe she's saved up 30 days vacation time and another 30 days days of unpaid leave, so the story all still fits. This assumes that going to work and working and employment are all tied together, which they don't have to be. There are no time constraints if Lois was simply let go and is currently unemployed, which could be possible if she's going to spend a stint on the Kent farm for a while. A more optimistic alternative is that Lois is still employed and still working, just working from home, something we're surely all much more sympathetic with today. If you take Martha's lines as literally true, then we know that this is the case because even after Clark's death, Lois writes and publishes the Night of Terror Morning of Loss article about Superman's death. Taking everything literally, it means that Lois submitted a piece without stepping into the office, but a much more natural interpretation is that Martha just means around the time of Clark's death, not day of. In theory, an ace reporter in the top percentile can command enough salary to keep the lights on for quite long, but that definitely isn't the norm even for politics surprise winners, and while it's possible to push the story out to 2017, nothing in the scene reads like a whole year's past. The whole world is mourning, grieving over a symbol. Putting the pregnancy aside, Martha's line seems fitting closer to BVS than further out. If JL occurs in 2017, it seems unlikely that these two haven't been in touch for over a year, and going past the anniversary of Clark's death in November 2016, to make it to January 2017 without a word. But if we're set back in January 2016, it does make more sense that the actual Martha hasn't reached out yet. She had seen Lois just a little over a month ago, and they each had to make it through the holidays alone. And in terms of tone, I think it's the same when Hippolyta checks in on the awakened mother boxes. Any changes today? No, my queen. It certainly feels more like a check-in on something that's been humming away for a month than over a year. Maybe it's just me, but given that the boxes present an existential threat to the entire world, at some point it seems that you have a duty to say more or do more than just guard the glowing box. Whatever your grudges against the rest of the world, it isn't worth it if your planet gets wiped out and terraformed. That said, I may be underestimating their patience because they've been patiently and actively guarding it for 5,000 years. Still, if it has been over a year, what were the boxes and Steppenwolf doing all that time? We can use our apologetics from the earlier episode, but the longer it goes, the more tenuous it becomes. On the other end of the spectrum, we have Suicide Squad, which is premised on a world without Superman, and the after credit scene also strongly implies that the League isn't assembled yet. So the natural and likely intended interpretation is that all the events occur between BVS and JL. In fact, we know that the initial pitch was more closely tied to the apocalyptic elements in Justice League. Responding to such inquiry, in a November 24, 2018 tweet, David Ayer wrote, quote, Enchantress was under the control of a mother box, and Steppenwolf was preparing an invasion with a boom tube. Had to lose that when the JL story arcs evolved, end quote. 
and subsequently he tweeted, all of the apocalypse elements were stripped out late game. I will always respect Ayer for attempting to play in the same sandbox rather than go off and build his own. So on that extrinsic meta level, 2017 seems a better fit with the intentions of having the film set in the year around their release up until now. Obviously, the easiest solution is just to refuse to reconcile the two and not worry about it. But if we try to make them one world, the date on the paper props are the first thing that have to go. And once we ignore that, Amanda Waller's pitch still has to be before Superman's around. And after that, we have to decide whether we're going to compress all of Suicide Squad into January 2016, or we're going to try to argue its main action occurs after the league has already dawned. Since this isn't a Suicide Squad episode, we're not going to walk through those apologetics, but they're doable if ugly and inelegant. I think my preferred solution is just to ignore it altogether, but between the two merger options, I favor compression, even if it does make for some weird artifacts like... Think there's an attack coming. You see, I believe enemies are coming. Yeah, Bruce, we know. The one in Midway City last week. <laughs> But it also does provide a possible apologetic for the lack of world government and military response to Steppenwolf. That was our main satellite up late. How did this witch even know how to target this thing? It's a secret facility. The argument would be that Enchantress has crippled our eyes in the sky and NHE responders really recently, which is why Steppenwolf is able to operate without intervention from human government forces. Maybe. So beards grow at about half an inch a month, meaning that Bruce can just get there in six weeks or so. The confounding factor is the to-do list that also has to occur between Clark's death and recruiting author. Even excluding the shaven scenes in Suicide Squad, BVS has to pack Lex and Batman's Bell Reeve bit before Clark's burial, because he doesn't have a beard yet. In an ordinary justice system, it would be impossible to shave Lex as a prisoner until weeks or months of due process. But as Suicide Squad will show, Bell Reeve is a questionable throwaway hole that's not all that concerned about due process or human rights. And by the way, we know it's Bell Reeve because the guard's arm patch says so. And I tend to say Bell Reeve, not Bell Rev, because that's how it's said in a streetcar named Desire. Anyways, given Lex's literal terrorism and enough public outrage over the Capitol building and Superman's death cry literally ringing in everyone's ears in a world where putting bombs into a prisoner is possible, Lex's due process might be done away with. A little like we've treated other terrorism suspects, I guess, although those tend to be less public figures. Alternatively, if you want to view the scene as a flash forward, you allow for more time for a just procedure, but you also push back Bruce's reaction to Lex's warning, growing out his beard, and hunting down Author. Drawing it out longer makes 2017 more sensible, excluding a Lois and Clark pregnancy, of course. Another factor which tends to push the film out and which interacts with the justice system is foreclosure. So the bank has foreclosed on the Kent farm, which in Kansas can't begin until 100 days after missed payment, even if unopposed. Typically, one has noticed long before that, and the pre-foreclosure process can average around 18 months, which aligns around the time when Clark makes his debut as Superman and moves to Metropolis. Given that a truck went through her house and that downtown Smallville became a battlefield, defaulting on one's mortgage isn't all that surprising. But I'm a little miffed that Clark wasn't sufficiently aware or taking care of his mom to avoid this. My personal preference wants to push these issues until after Clark's death, where her grief is compounded by the bank and she isn't able to hang on to the house. But of course that pushes our timetable out too far, unless 
Yes, the film takes place in 2017. Or, and sadly this happens all the time, the foreclosure is improper and illegal and accordingly premature. Despite all the procedure and due process that we provide, it's still an unintuitive process where the elderly can be preyed upon. And even if the quote-unquote proper solution would be to take the creditors to court, it's a lot faster to fight fire with fire and quote-unquote buy the bank. A corporate acquisition would still take at least four to five months until all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted, but if it's a shady bank doing shady deals, the assurance of acquisition may be enough to forgive the mortgage. So as far as foreclosure is concerned, initially it seems like it should stay in Superman or push the film out for a year or more, but we can cram in an apologetic to force it to fit almost any timeline as long as an injustice is occurring. <laughs> Okay, so if JL takes place in January, what's with the corn on the Kent farm? There's a Midwestern expression, knee-high in July, to describe the height of corn expected to provide a proper yield come harvest time. But the saying goes back before the Second World War and out of Iowa, which has a poorer corn climate. Kansas has much better conditions for corn, especially as you go south, like Comanche, which we can see on the foreclosure sign. And with modern agricultural science, it's usually chest-high by July. And we can see this kind of growth as early as March. But to see it this high in January must mean planting corn in the dead of winter, which isn't advised. But also, not impossible. If we insist that this is January, there are special dwarf varietals with 55-day growth cycles that top out at 3 to 4 feet tall. Using biodegradable film to insulate the ground, growing corn in the cold is possible, as it's done in Canada, where this warm-weather crop will still work with a temperate winter. And while this approach might be insane on an industrial scale, it could be justified as a blue-sky boutique approach for a small independent farm. In other words, while Martha would never be able to beat the behemoths on on price or quantity, she might make a place in the market selling specialty sweet summer corn out of season. It could be just the kind of desperate innovation that the last of a generation may make, since Superman taking over the farm seems unlikely at this time. Lynn Horfel has been farming his whole life, and before that, three previous generations worked this land. But now, for the first time in over a century, no family member wants to take over. Most likely, we'll turn the land over to one of our neighbors. Now 75 says his own five children, coal found jobs off the farm, witnessed the farm crisis of the 1980s, when low commodity prices and high interest rates drove thousands of farms to bankruptcy. For the farmers, who went out of business, who lost their business, who lost everything except their life. That was really hard. And my kids picked up on that. And they decided they re didn't really want to work 20 years and then start over. It's a dilemma facing many small family-owned farms. To keep the younger generations involved, some must look for ways to expand or diversify. And again, that influence of finances over the farm is ever-present, which is why I wish Clark was more aware. I think the main lesson to take away is to call your mom and check up on her, Make sure that she's verifiably okay. Okay? <laughs> I should call my mom, though. But basically, modern science and modern markets mean that corn is conceivable any month, just not likely. And I hope you enjoy my gymnastics, because I've got one last backflip to bank. <laughs> it's that bloody butterfly, so I'm not an Aurelian. I'm a lepidopterist. You're a what? I study butterflies. 
but it looks like a cabbage white, which can be seen in Kansas from February until mid-November. They're among the first butterflies you'd see in the spring and among the last you'd see in the fall. That wide range makes it work almost any time of year, except our January target. But I can explain even that, and in this case, it comes partially from personal experience. We humans have introduced artificial environments like our homes into the equation. When we found a butterfly wintering indoors with us, we wondered what we should do. And after a little research, we learned that butterflies will sometimes be confused by the climate inside, shortening or even eliminating hibernation altogether. So Martha may have had this little house guest all this time, let out with the move or with this visit, since neither Clark nor Lois closed the front door. <laughs> So 2017 works with a lot of the story, but not all of it, and least of all with Lois's story. Outside of some really unlikely alien shenanigans, a pregnancy with Clark doesn't really coincide with 2017. Your timeline is wrong. Even if this is Snyder's way of shoehorning the idea of a pregnancy between Bruce and Lois in, it's hard to imagine her taking over a year of absence in grief, yet being able to be in a relationship with Bruce in the same state. Overall, the emotional truth of the film feels sooner than later from BVS. More like a recent tragedy instead of something that's been there over a year. While there is no clock on grief, I don't think the whole world would be mourning more than a year later. And it seems implausible that Victor Victor's been seething at his father for a full year before they begin to talk, that it's been more than a year before Martha reaches out to Lois, etc. With the density of dates, you may have missed why I keep saying 2017, and it's for two reasons. First is the continuing tradition of films to be set in the year around their actual theatrical release, and second is Silas's headstone from the ending montage showing 2017 as the year of his death. As we know, Silas dies while the League are fighting Steppenwolf, meaning that JL takes place in the year 2017 if we accept the year on this prop to be controlling canon. The most obvious solution is that it's simply an error or an artifact of an earlier intention. That's what we're calling the alternate timeline. I guess you can try to make it work with some really crazy headcanon, like nothing requires this scene occur immediately after the events in JL, and perhaps in getting to know Superman better, Vic is inspired by how Clark came to meet Jor-El, and then, using a combination of his powers, the scoutship AI, and his father's video journal archive, he resurrects a simulated Silas for a season before Digital Dad asks Cyborg to let him go in 2017. Timeline restored, paradox resolved. I don't know. At some point, probably 40 minutes ago, you've got to let it go. <laughs> Personally, I'm pretty comfortable in not worrying about the canonicity of prop text, which is often wrong by necessity. Did you ever wonder why phone numbers in TV shows and movies always start with the numbers 555? The short answer is that most 555 numbers are not working numbers, so real people won't be harassed if diehard fans try to call them. Accordingly, on-screen text is typically missing dates and times, the UIs often don't make sense for real-world use, longitude and latitude have nonsense figures so that they don't point to anywhere actual, etc, etc. And what are some examples that always has to change because it never matches reality in a certain way that, that oh, you would expect? I would say newspaper design is something that comes up time and time again. Every, oh, yeah. every movie you watch has got a newspaper in it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I take that information to the director and the production designer and say, this is really what it was like. And then it's their call whether they stick with historical accuracy or they say, we need a newspaper headline, make that headline bigger. Right. Yeah. 
and very often the people working on the prop don't actually have access to the plot and instead have to generate it telling stories for themselves. Were they specific about wanting all of this? No, because they were sort of writing the, the script on the fly for this and then I just made up a bunch of crazy stuff too. I made up stuff about the Titanic. <laughs> this actually sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> So imagine all the work and effort that goes into making an authentic article physically manifested, but then on top of that to be told you're responsible to write copy for paragraphs or pages of material. Basically, anytime you see a character in a movie read a newspaper, somebody has to make that newspaper. We always design everything from scratch. So when somebody makes a prop that commemorates Jonathan and Martha's marriage, they can use their sense of setting and character to make it homey needlepoint. But when it comes to the details, they're determining those on their own, like pinpointing the anniversary to be October 21st, 1973, or learning that Martha and Jonathan's middle initials are C and J respectively. Maybe that's not what it was in the comics or historically, but given the Herculean task of bringing fantasy to life, I always give those gaps a pass. I mean, does it matter? Like, how, how much does continuity matter? I mean, our attention is really on humans, right? The cameras on people's faces and on the drama that's unfolding between people. People aren't really watching for continuity errors in graphics, are they? This is what happens. You end up on the IMDb goofs page. The calendar on the wall says October 1932, but shows October 5th, 12th, 19th, and 26th as Sundays. In 1932, those dates fell on Wednesdays. 30 out of 35 people found this interesting. They're right. When we made the calendar, we didn't think to check the dates against the days, but we didn't think anybody else would either. Uh, and one last one, every newspaper fe that features a date has the wrong day of the week. 21 out of 29 people found that interesting. Again, they're right. You know, I'm not, I'm not really bothered by this. I, I think it's funny. I, li I like to show it to people, but I'm not really worried about it. I don't feel like it's really, it's really that these people have a beef with our work. I think it's more that they're having a competition with each other, you know, they're freeze-framing the DVD. But I do think it's a good example of how much detail we actually do go into and get right if this is what they've got on us, right? Consuming all the supplemental documentary making of material that came with the Lord of Rings extended editions has forever cemented my appreciation for prop making. Another example of having to populate a prop without access to the plot is a clipping in Man of Steel that was available at auction but never actually made it to screen. Is a stickler for detail. So when you see something on film that's not historically accurate. Yeah, I die a little inside. <laughs> It's harder on my family if they're watching it with me because I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Harder still when one of his carefully crafted props gets little screen time, like the period passport he made for Boardwalk Empire. But this was all anyone saw of it. Passport? On screen. You feel a bit like an actor who's been cut out of the film? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's some of the problems you have to deal with when you're a prop maker. Biggest, of course, is sometimes you don't even make it in the film. But I, and what he made is a thing uh, of beauty. It's just so beautiful. And that's it. The article makes reference to essentially the discovery of kryptonite long before it was introduced in BVS. So unless the text is essential to the plot or its emotions, I think it should be accepted as texture, not truth. There's a design of things, the look of things, and then there's also the soul that comes in with all those people working on creating that, that texture within the set. And yeah. that's super exciting. Often you can see this is the intention upon inspection. For example, in BVS, Clark's obituary gets his birth year wrong 
wrong, saying 1986 instead of 1980. And the text begins to repeat halfway through the obit because you were never meant to pause and read the entire article from beginning to end. Just take in the headlines. Most of my work, about 90% of my work, is actually supposed to be in the blurry background, right? You're not supposed to see it. I don't think you're supposed to notice it. Most of my work shouldn't really be seen, but most of the films I work on, you shouldn't really notice the graphics at all. You should be concentrating on the characters. With the volume of stuff they must make to fake their movie magic, it's amazing it's as good as it is. But Silas's headstone wouldn't be the only year-based typo in Justice League. Blind Limited was responsible for many of the fantasy user interfaces and motion graphics in Justice League, including Barry's profile during the break-in to Star Labs. But... And there's an interesting little fix to the scene where the Justice League break into Star Labs. In the theatrical release, the date of birth of Barry's fake military profile is November 2010, which at the time of the film's release, 2017, would have made the character only seven years old. In the Snyder Cut, the date's been fixed, so the birth year is now 1997. To their credit, they fixed it, but it just goes to show how these things can slip by all the time. I should say, no, we never want to fix anything post. We're always trying to get it right for the camera, but I think there is a point in any production where you can see the whole kind of props team start groaning, oh, just fix it in post. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, my career is on, in film has only really been the last 10 years, so we, we've always been able to fix things in post, but no, we, we should avoid it wherever possible. Despite downgrading their materiality to continuity or canonicity, I still have a soft spot for production text, particularly with BBS, because it contains the smallest personal mark on the canon of this universe. It's no secret. I love Man of Steel, and so it should be no surprise that I've been trying to inhabit the reality of these films from the very beginning, asking these kinds of questions, looking for answers to make it all more interesting, engaging, and real for me. And that's how I came to contribute to the coining of BZE, or Black Zero Event, to describe the invasion in Man of Steel. In a post entitled Man of Steel, what would they call the event? slash disaster afterwards, I try to work out the naming convention that would apply to this day of disaster. And so I'm going to read an abridged version, quote, 9-11, Columbine, Katrina. In building the world of the sequel, humanity has the need to affix names to major events. Metropolis is too worldly a city with too much going on for the Black Zero attack to be reduced to the name of the location. Additionally, the event was arguably preceded by a global ultimatum, a battle in Smallville, and occurred simultaneously with an Indian Ocean engine event, so calling it Metropolis doesn't fit. If you consider 9-11, it's similar in the sense that there was the Pentagon and World Trade Center attacks. The Black Zero event leveled additional buildings or possibly an entire district, but you couldn't confine it to a single date like 9-11 because viewed as one event, it was preceded by the global ultimatum and the Battle of Smallville. Katrina serves as shorthand for the cause of the devastation and the locations hit. However, it's a force of nature personified without the intimacy of actually being a person. It doesn't seem appropriate to call the event Zod or Krypton, and World War II was a term that encompassed an entire event. So how would humanity dub its first contact with a hostile alien race? At some point, a name would arise from the ether and the media and individuals would begin to adopt that term. So what would they call the Black Zero event? What do you think? End quote. So in reply, somebody says you pretty much named it yourself. It would be called the Black Zero event, BZE for short. 
And so from then on, that's what I used in my posts, in my podcast, what ended up proliferating and ultimately ended up being picked up by some awesome prop maker in putting together one of the hero props for Batman versus Superman, specifically the paper clipping containing the you let your family die seen by Bruce after the bombing. While the article is only a backdrop to that impactful message, it's there that my tiny contribution is immortalized. The Daily Planet article is titled Wayne Tower Devastated with a large quote dozens killed and an image of the fallen Wayne Financial. When I first saw the film in 70mm at Lincoln Square, I could make out much of the text, but obviously I couldn't remember it all even after repeat viewings. You can read it rather easily in the 4K edition of the film, but where I first got a glimpse of it was in that BVS art book right there on page 102. And even better was the version scanned, sized up, straightened, sharpened, and fixed by Fiona. Yes, that Fiona. <laughs> this is one of my first contacts with her, finding her to be someone else who wanted to dive deep into these worlds and appreciate them. To think that we went from there wondering about Zack's world on the internet to here, getting to see Zack Snyder's Justice League is enough to make a grown man cry. <laughs> The journey has been a blast, and I have to publicly thank Fiona for the early access to Justice League. She's been a friend to the end. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I've gone off on another tangent, haven't I? What I was getting to is that that article includes my coinage in the very first line. Quote, Once heralded as the most forward-thinking building in North America, Wayne Tower was not immune from the devastating effects from Metropolis. During the attack, many are calling the Black Zero event. End quote that my many questions and answers contributed in the tiniest way to the world building of these films that I love so much is something that brings a smile to my face when I think about it now and then. <laughs> it's just so perfect because it isn't something big or canon or affecting, but instead that kind of unessential detail that no one but those as obsessed as me, or perhaps those who listen to a cast like this, would even notice or even care about. It's that lovely prop master taking a little time to look at what those inhabiting the world are saying, and putting it into the film to fill it out just a little, which is exactly the kind of attention to care I love. And if we ever learn who put this in, let me know so we can give them a hug. <laughs> it's the kind of kind conversation between creator and audience that Zack Snyder fosters, as opposed to some creators seemingly at odds with them. So remember that this dissection comes from a place of love, and in that sense, it's ultimately going to be the answer to coping with contradiction, exactly as Jonathan says in BVS, no amount of reasoning is going to heal the heartache of learning the world isn't just, that bad things happen to good people, and bad outcomes can come from good intentions, that justice is very often gray, but what gets you through it all is love. And we've discussed that before, so I'm not going to gush about it again here and now. But back to our ultimate topic of the timeline. I think it's completely fair to not care, to let the story sweep over you instead of trying to tie it to time. You might call it a sort of temporal suspension of disbelief, to go along with our geographical or spatial suspension of disbelief. After all, I can look up all the countries in Africa and nowhere will I find Nairobi. I can comb through the coast of the Chesapeake Bay and Metropolis is missing, Gotham is gone. And yet I accept that they exist in fictional space, so why can't I fit this story in fictional time? I think it's because in many ways, story is time in a way that it isn't space. A story is an account of events, the conveying of pearls of occurrence, strung together in sequence and by consequence. And hopefully through this episode, you can see that it does that exceptionally well. That almost everything connects and is in order as you'd expect. It's just that the string itself is a little hard to place. It's like a huge contract, isn't it, between the audience 
audience and the play and the players, the audience, given any chance, want to believe. So as long as you do everything to suspend their disbelief, then you keep that contract. But as soon as you break that contract and do something that shows them the mechanics or overacts, overplays your cards, the moment where they're going, sorry, I don't believe that. So I think it may be even more valid to let it go than wanting to know. After all, if the intention was to anchor it to a date and time, they could have done as they did in BVS and include explicit dates, days, and holidays to clearly say, this is when we are. But Zack Snyder's Justice League doesn't include a card like 18 months later, or dated invites or clear sights like the Day of the Dead. And in this case, omission could be a sign of intention, that we're to have a sense, but not to know, to sit with that uncertainty as secondary to the central story. So, was this all for naught? Of course not. I'm still gonna take a stab at it anyways, what do you take me for? <laughs> Ultimately, it's impossible to make everything work together with any kind of natural interpretation, and to me, the three big sticking points are the Lois and Clark pregnancy, the Moons, and Silas's headstone. So you're going to have to make a call on those and decide where you want to place your entire timeline. And to make that call, I'm going to use a test of emotional truth. In other words, not so much whether the interpretation affects the logic of the world, but how much it affects the feeling of the film. Starting with Silas's 2017, I think it's pretty clear that the year doesn't really matter emotionally. What you get from that scene is Cyborg's ability to accept the tragedy of his transformation and the good that it gave, to look upon his family fondly instead of the bitterness he held against his father and his heartbreak over his mother, to look at them as they once were as something to smile about and to be among the brave ones smiling too. None of that needs it to be 2017, 2016, or any other date really. It's just one digit, not not the meaning of the scene for me. So I'm downgrading it as a one-digit typo on a prop, not where the time flow's gotta stop. On the moons, the theatrical changes arguably establish that they aren't essential. The change of the arrow moon from last quarter to full has no impact on the narrative, and the full moon in the finale of Zack Snyder's Justice League is entirely erased by the theatrical red skies. I'm gonna give up imagining I see a waning gibbous, but they do dictate the light available in the final fight. They're apparently everywhere, and they're certainly stylish. So my ultimate call is to prefer for the final fight to fall in a full moon, while ignoring the arrow moon. Willows were swaying, the water was rippling, the froggies were singing, along with the lapping at the bank. We have the moon to thank for this lovely scene. We might never had seen If it hadn't been for the moon Why look at that moon Finally, we come to the call on Lois's pregnancy, which is tricky because you have more options. Nothing intrinsic to the film requires her to be pregnant at all. 
everything on screen is still possible without a pregnancy. Alternatively, she could be pregnant, but not necessarily with Clark. Even if that creates questions, it's not impossible. And finally, the most favored, and of course my preferred interpretation, is that she's pregnant carrying Clark's child. As much as I hate to admit it, the theatrical cut shows that erasing the pregnancy is a possibility. But that has an incredible impact on everything. The story, its subtext, her performance, and the audience. So even if eliminating the pregnancy is logically convenient, I can't accept the emotional collateral damage. So for me, that interpretation is out. That leaves the possibility of a pregnancy with someone other than Clark. And again, it's a similar conclusion. Even if it makes some of the timeline cleaner, I can't stomach the emotional implications. It's not that it's impossible with the film as is, but I will argue that even if it eases some of the timeline, it offends logic, characterization, and taste elsewhere, so it isn't an elegant solution either. What you gain with the timeline you lose in taking shrapnel from the story all over the place elsewhere. You have to remember that Lois is still wearing Clark's ring and visiting his memorial unbidden every day until his return. So to make that work, Lois must be admitting to a loveless or loveless affair. And look, to be fair, there is something profound in parenting an adopted child for Clark. And that's one of my favorite options in the comics. But that often comes out of biological limitations or implications that don't exist in this universe. Diane Anna and author are living, breathing proof that procreation across peoples is possible on this planet. And it's implied that this was Jor-El's ambition for him to act as a bridge between peoples, but not to activate or use the Genesis Chamber. So how was Krypton to be reborn then? By the very same means that Kal-El came into being. Natural birth. Adoption's still an immensely beautiful thing, but so is a bridging birth. And in the context of this particular story and the role rebirth plays, it makes the emotional resonance more. There's pros and cons to every alternate timeline. Now, what about a Lois and Clark pregnancy? Undoubtedly, this would have the biggest emotional effect and provide a conclusion for Clark, who honestly doesn't have a lot to do in this film otherwise. So even if it makes a mess of the timeline, offends logic and sense, for my call, I'm considering it canon for now. There's a timeline for each of us. That means I'm looking for a date within the reasonable early stages of a pregnancy where the action ends on a full moon without worrying about the one-digit typo on Silas's headstone. Additionally, I'm using the compressed five-day timeline because it's consistent with soft factors like the feeling of urgency and the need to respond, and it's consistent with the kidnapping of Howard, who's kept captive longer for no reason the more we stretch out the main action's timeline. Finally, since I don't think the real world would erase major holidays like Christmas, New Year's, or Valentine's, I put the action past them. This also preserves the extrinsic evidence that Snyder's stated intent is that it occur, quote, about a month or so. You add it all together, what's my official, unofficial start to Steppenwolf's invasion? Sunday, January 17, 2016, with the Justice League standing together in the sun on the dawn of Saturday the 23rd. I'm sure you know full moons are separated by about a month, so if you check the earlier candidate, the final battle would be on Christmas. And if you push it a month, Valentine's Day weekend was the weekend before Diana's co-worker asks, how was your weekend? So it's not perfect, but it will do for now. I'm going to set the timeline right. Thank you for attending the first draft of my Jeffersonian Bible. <laughs>
I've long argued that Man of Steel and BVS were largely about leaving the work to you, which is one of the reasons that the films have been so polarizing. People come at it with their own prejudices or unwilling to do the work. And Justice League does a lot of the emotional lifting for you, which is why it's so positively received. There's little to no ambiguity about the bad guys and the good guys are mostly saying what we want them to. Yet for a film that features a cosmic rewind, it's interesting that its greatest ambiguity may lie in its timeline. Instead of pinning it down definitively, the film literally asks us to make our own future, make our own past. It's all right now. Inhabit it. Live with it. Then make your own future. Make your own past. Decide what the story will be because we, the fans, took it from tragedy to a triumph. Something beyond the expectations and belief of even the filmmakers. And it's a nice little nod for them to cede some of that authority to us. Look, everyone's timeline is different. To let us create, imagine, dream, make our own futures, our own pasts. But I've rambled on long enough, so thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. Last episode, I said I didn't have the film memorized and that you wouldn't wait for me to get there. Well, figuring out the timeline is one of the ways that I eventually get there. One person in a thousand of readers would probably have noticed that. So I apologize if I'm the one in a thousand viewer infecting you with my observation, but I think you already knew what you were getting into if you're still listening to this. But whatever you might lose in looking at the reality of the moons in one way, I assure you will gain back in another. While you can't have full moons that stretch seven nights, you can get a moon that's over 90% for the entire span. And there are many, many other timeline questions, especially as to who knows what when, how, and why, but I've mercifully edited out all those tangents to keep it about the when and where, just the moving of people from place to place in time rather than what's on their mind. But in these endnotes, I'm going to put back three segments as extras, one on Aquaman, one on Cyborg, and finally one for Wonder Woman, and bring back the moon in a meaningful way. Maybe. Enjoy. <laughs> You're the answer, son. For all the guff I give about the moons, they do sync with another seasonal feature found in the Aquaman story. First, Neil deGrasse Tyson explains the phenomenon known as spring tides. There are some people believe that when you have a full moon, what you have is a higher tide because you have a fuller moon. You do have a higher tide. Oh, snap. But the tide that the moon raises on the Earth is basically the same, no matter its phase. No matter its phase. What happens at full moon uh -huh. is that the sun's tide add to the moon's tides precisely. A tide assists. And that coincides with the full moon. Coincides with the full moon. Because nice. the full moon, you got the moon here, right. Earth, and the sun. Everybody lines up. Note that these occur about every two weeks for the full and new moons. So they're not called spring after the season. Now consider the fact the moons orbit around us and our orbit around the sun is elliptical. 
But every so often, there are other factors that can enhance the spring tides making an even bigger difference from low to high tide. Let's see what those factors are. The moon revolves around the Earth in an ellipse, sometimes farther from the Earth, called apogee, and sometimes coming closer to the Earth, called perigee. At perigee, the tidal effects are greater. At apogee, the effects are less. So once a month, when the moon is closer to the Earth, we get enhanced tides. Likewise, the Earth revolves around the sun in an ellipse, sometimes farther from the sun, called aphelion, and sometimes coming closer to the sun, called perihelion. At perihelion, the solar tide effects are greater. At aphelion, less so. Once every year, somewhere near January 4th, we'll experience an enhanced solar tides. Now we combine all these effects. Enhanced lunar tides once a month when the moon is near perigee. Enhanced solar tides once a year in December or January when the earth is near perihelion. And spring tides at new or full moon. Added up, we get a measurably higher tide once or twice a year we call king tides. So, would you like to know when these were in 2016? The moon was in perigree on January 1st, and we were in perihelion on January 4th. Then the nearest spring tides would be December 27th and January 9th as king tide candidates. Either is still in winter. It comes in the winter when the people are hungry. The ultimate crowning of the king tide comes from more localized climate events like a storm surge or El Nino, which amplify the effect even further. With our deluge of dates, I wouldn't expect you to remember that we've already mentioned the 27th of December, but it was mentioned as six weeks from the funeral at the end of BVS around November 15th. In our earlier analysis, we started Justice League with Steppenwolf's invasion and waved away this scene as too ambiguous to pin down. But considering that it's starts Zack's film, how do we know he didn't mean six weeks to this scene? I mean, we're remote and removed enough from the commercialization of major holidays to possibly not see a hint. That said, we know that the choppers have been grounded for at least six days prior, meaning that Bruce has been traveling by horseback in that window. (laughs) And I can't shake the feeling that Alfred would never have let Bruce hear the end of it if this is how he spent his Christmas. So January 9th is less prone to that problem. It's rare after all that anyone should take any issues with your plans after New Year's. Enough with the timeline crap! So what about the moon during the cyborg scene? Well, the short version is that Victor gives us four lunar sightings, and it would take way too much time to talk through all the permutations, but the most memorable one is in his first flight, breaking through the clouds with a full moon in the background. Then, as the parademon is perched outside his window on the fire escape, we see another full moon. And then when Diana meets him in the street, there's a moon obscured by the clouds, but it also looks full as well. Then finally, as Vic is burying the box, the moon over the cemetery is also full. To account for all the combinations and possibilities was just too much when I ultimately just give up on the arrow moon. So if you ignore these two, it all still fits into our compressed one-week timeline, where Sunday is Steppenwolf and Monday through Friday is responding to his invasion. As I mentioned earlier, there 
there are at least two seams in the timeline where you can insert extra days without upending the logic of the sequence or undoing the timeline as long as you don't stretch it too far. If you use one of those seams to move cyborg scenes to Friday the 22nd instead of Tuesday the 19th, you still have a 98% waxing gibbous, which is basically indistinguishable from a full moon to the naked eye, and you still have the final fight with Steppenwolf on Monday, January 25th, which is still a full moon. Of course, you do have the oddity then that Star Labs is fully staffed on a Sunday, but that's not impossible either. Alternatively, you can move the arrow to Wednesday, and then you have the weirdness of Diana's co-worker asking her how her weekend was on a Thursday. You and your stupid timeline. Now, incidentally, Victor's first flight was most likely a flashback, even though it's edited after the recorder is destroyed. To start with, the entire sequence is already non-linear, with flashbacks and jumps in place and time. Additionally, while he's flying, there's generally no voiceover, which makes sense because Silas is talking about something thematically different. What you can do now, Victor, your physical strength is just the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the tip. And then Silas elaborates by talking about Victor's digital information abilities, while flight is showcasing a physical strength. Learning to fly as well makes an already jam-packed night even more full. And finally, it makes more emotional sense that the joy and the freedom that he feels from the power of flight has had enough separation in time that he can't see it for the gift that it is when Diana meets him. But whatever happened to you, you have gifts now. Gifts? What part of this? Looks like a gift to you. Now, that isn't to say that people don't enact emotional whiplash all the time, but I also think it's okay to space it out. And finally, there's that extrinsic cheat that I don't want to use, that he could fly by this time already in the theatrical cut. Ultimately, while Victor is the emotional and thematic heart of the film, he isn't the keeper of the clock. I think that distinction would seem to go to Diana, as she's the only one tied to Steppenwolf's entrance into the story by way of the Amazons, and exit as ending the threat of the enemy. If you use Diana as the spine of the timeline, you can connect almost every other character to it. The oldest living character is also the one most adept at living in the present. I'd say that Superman is the second runner-up, hampered by the fact he isn't living at all for most of the movie. <laughs> Now, every other character is burdened by their past in a way that's controlling their present. In terms of the timeline, every other character leaps through time unwittingly as a reflex. Either they are compelled to bring up past pain or forcibly shown dark futures out of their control. As a great philosopher once said, Basically telling me that all of the superheroes and the villains got family issues. Say so they just all need to go to group therapy. I'm serious. Just, just go to therapy. See, it always comes down to somebody trying to make their daddy happy. Go to therapy. Just go to therapy. Don't come down here and destroy the earth. Go see a therapist. <laughs> Diana seems like the only one who has taken control of the story to guide her present path. While the other heroes are being told what their potential is, Wonder Woman is the one wanting people to see what they can be. You can be anything you want to be. You have gifts now. We need you, Victor. An Amazon working with an Atlantean. 
which is much of the wisdom that I've been wanting to see from this 5,000-year-old Wonder Woman. She's a storyteller through it all, knowing and wielding the power of stories. Without modern telecommunications, consider how she would have heard about the Arrow of Artemis. Unless she had stayed in or around Crete for the past 5,000 years, only in the last 150 years could word have reached her quickly. Instead, it would have been something to spark a story, to be told and retold until she had heard. Diana knows the power of stories to spread and influence, and in this story, she ties together our timeline as she is the witness to our very first scene. She gives shape, name, and history to Bruce's indistinct fears by way of the Arrow of Artemis, which ties her in time to the invasion on the island this time as well as to the story so long ago, and she recruits Victor, is there to receive Barry, buries the hatchet with Arthur, and is there for it all from beginning to end. It's fitting that she should be there to remind Bruce that the table needs to have room for more, because she sees that we should not just marvel at the miracle that brought them together, but capitalize on that story to shape its future. King Tides are a story of what happens when everything comes together, in one moment to make something happen beyond the ordinary. Heaven and earth literally have to align to give us the King Tide. But imagine if we wrote them off as one-time occurrences never to happen again, despite knowing all the elements that contribute to making the king. And when we know where and how the world is moving, even the exceptional king tides can act as glimpses of the future. Climate change is coming, and with it rising sea levels that are threatening coastal cities like San Francisco. It's hard to imagine what a few feet of extra water sloshing around will mean, but king tides, the highest tides of the year, give us a glimpse of the soon-to-be new normal. These tides are a way for us to visualize what the future of sea level rise will be like. That's what we're going to see every single day, 2030, 2040, 2050, depending on how climate change and sea level rise go. When you add the king tide and the El Nino and the storm surge effects together, we can start to see the kind of sea level rise or the kind of sea levels that we're going to see on a permanent basis by the end of the century. Of course, when we talk about extraordinary circumstances coming together, giving us a glimpse of the future, I don't think we're limited to just talking about king tides, right? Any other stories come to mind? <laughs> You're the answer, son.